0: The table about to turn The table about to turn The table about to turn Yeah uh, I keep my hands dirty My mind clean Got a new agenda with a new dream uh, I'm kicking out the old regime Liberation, elevation, education America You alive But the whole world about to testify I said the whole world This is Michael Moore and this is Rumble. It was the... I'm going to say the late spring of 1965. My mother wanted to take us to the World's Fair in New York City. And it was the 1964 World's Fair. It was going to last for two years. She didn't want us to miss it. She had attended the 1939 World's Fair where they unveiled this new invention uh, called the television. So she wanted to go back in 1965, but uh, she said, first, I want to take you kids to our nation's capital. We'd never been there before. I was, let's see, 11 years old. And um, she wanted us to see our government, (laughs) our government in action. She wanted to take us to Capitol Hill. Uh, She took us a Smithsonian White House tour. I mean, the whole—it was really amazing and fascinating. But it came time to go to the Capitol building on this particular day, and we got in line so that we could get one of the free seats in the gallery. Both the Senate and the House have a gallery. It's called the gallery. It's a balcony. And I think I might have mentioned this before on the podcast. But uh, it—my two sisters and myself—she shuffles us into into the seats. I can actually see exactly where we were sitting now in my own memory, right in the front row uh, by the railing, looking down as our members of Congress were debating something called the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And my mom's explaining this and why a law was needed. And I just remember leaning leaning into that railing and listening to it, And it was quite, quite a fight on the floor I and mean, quite a debate between those who were righteously and rightfully telling us in the country why we needed to pass a voting rights bill. And this is, you know, you have to understand, this is, a, this is a couple months, maybe a month or so after Selma, after um, people were killed. And so I got the seriousness of this I understood what she was saying I did not understand why certain members on the floor were fighting this like why would you be against the right to vote I mean that's just one of the key things about being an American and you know this is the this is I think I just finished fifth grade so I got I mean I under, I understood I got it and uh and I also got and my mom explained it to me the essential racism of those who were trying to stop this bill from being passed but it didn't work it passed it passed the voting rights act of 1965 and i had literally a front row seat as an 11 year old watching this historic piece of legislation take place and to And to really maybe for the first time in the almost 200 years of the country, in the 100 years, exactly 100 years after the Civil War, where it was now the law of the land. Everybody who's an adult and a citizen of the country has a right to vote. I've carried that with me my whole life, that moment, that day feeling very honored and privileged to have sat there and watched it. And when 2006 came along, there was a thing in the news about how it had to be re- renewed. And I'm thinking renewed. I thought this was like a permanent law. No, no. There it, 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 it was a provision in there that said this is, uh, 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 this is going to last 40 years or whatever. And then it had to be renewed. So, okay. And it was, and it was. But a lot of people didn't like that because it became clearer and clearer to Republicans as we went through the first decade of the century and then now into the second decade, the second decade that just ended a few months ago, that making it so that everybody can vote is not really a good idea. If you're a Republican, because as we've seen over these last 20 years and really as we've seen since 1988, the American people don't like the Republican Party and they don't like Republicans and they don't like what they stand for. And that's why in all these years since 1988 when George H.W. Bush was elected, only once have the American people through the popular vote, the actual vote of the majority, have said we want a Republican in there. George W. Bush uh, made it through, barely, won by 150,000 votes, one state, Ohio, that's it. Skin of his teeth. And... Um, so only one time in well, 88 is how many years ago? 30, 32, 30, 33 years ago. So for 33 years, only once have the American people said, give me a Republican, put him in the White House. They've lost the popular vote every other election, every single election since then, except for that one in 04. So it became clear to them that um, this, uh, This idea of making it easy for people to vote um, and letting black and brown people vote is really a bad idea if Republicans are ever going to have any power. And in 2013, the Supreme Court um, uh, tossed it. And it took until the Democrats were back in charge of the House in 2019 where they then passed the renewal of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, But of course, the Mitch McConnell Senate would not take it up, would not uh, would not pass it. So um, that's just a little background of why you and I are talking today and why I have invited uh, a guest uh, to be with us to explain what is going on right now, this week, next week, this month, and what you and I uh, need to do to bring back our Voting Rights Act. And I have to say, before I bring him out here, I don't think there is a journalist right now covering voting rights more vigorously than Ari Berman. Ari Berman, for the past several years, I mean, he writes about it. He's wrote a book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. He writes op-eds and blogs and essays, and uh, you, you might have uh, actually seen him uh, if you saw the documentary, on Stacey Abrams, All In, The Fight for Democracy. It got shortlisted uh, for the Oscars. He was in that. When this issue is being discussed, he is everywhere, thank God. He's currently a senior reporter at Mother Jones Magazine. Let's get right to it. Welcome to Rumble, Ari Berman. Hey, Michael,
1: great to talk to you, and thank you for that kind introduction. And that was an incredible story you told about actually hearing
0: the debate over the Voting Rights Act. Oh, I just— I. I was so grateful to my mom, especially as I got older and was an adult. But you, Ari, I just, I really wanted to have you on because I feel like, okay, so this is passed again. It's called H.R. 1. Maybe you could explain exactly what did pass the House. Now, because it's got to go to the Senate, and this is where hopefully, hopefully, the filibuster, the reign of terror of the filibuster terror, because I remember also when I was a kid, a filibuster meant you had to you had to stand and talk as long as you could until you dropped dead, or you know fainted. Now nobody dropped dead, and that was the end of the, filib- <laughs> that was the, end of the filibuster. <laughs> so just explain to us what is going on right now because I read I read this bill, this HR one. Oh my God, my friends listening to this! If you if you can go, maybe Ari will tell us where to go. If you really want to read, or just read the bullet points of the of the bill, because it is it's so cool. But tell us what this is, HR one. And the stakes that are in front of us, because I'm so afraid we're not going to get this through, because we're we're so well, obviously we're consumed with trying to not die. So COVID obviously has the the center stage as it should. And there's other things, but I'm just you know, take the microphone and tell us what is this and what is at stake.
1: So in early March, the House passed HR1, known as the For the People Act, which is the most Significant democracy reform bill since the Voting Rights Act passed in 1965, and it would just lead to a huge expansion of voting access by putting in policies on a nationwide basis, like automatic voter registration, election day registration, uh, two weeks of early voting, uh, expanded mail voting, Restoring voting rights to people with past felony convictions, making it so that people can't be disenfranchised by voter ID laws or voter purges, Uh, independent redistricting commissions for congressional races, uh, public financing of elections. These would all be put in place on a nationwide basis for federal elections because Congress can set the rules for federal elections, which means that when you would go to vote for Congress or you would go to vote for the president— All of these incredible pro voting policies would be in place for those kind of races. And this would go a long way to stopping the rampant voter suppression efforts we're seeing today, because the backdrop to the passage of H.R. 1 is the fact that in the first two months of this year, 253 restrictions on voting have been introduced in 43 states by Republicans, which is seven. How many? 253 in 43 states in the first two months of this year. Oh my
0: God, wow.
1: That's seven times higher than last year. So obviously Republicans have been trying to suppress the vote for a while, but they're trying to suppress the vote in such a more dramatic way now than they have done in the past. And they have really weaponized Trump's big lie all across the country to try to do things like roll back mail voting and cut early voting and purge the voting rolls. All of those things would be stopped by H.R. 1 the For the People Act. I mean, it would dramatically make it easier to vote, but it would also stop all of these voter suppression efforts. So it's incredibly important. There's also a companion bill, which is H.R. 4 to restore the Voting Rights Act, which was gutted by the Supreme Court in 2013. That is now called the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, named after the great civil rights leader. That is also That also passed the House. Uh, In 2019, it has to pass the House again to go to the Senate. But basically, what is happening is two of the most important voting rights bills since 1965, H.R. 1, the For the People Act, and H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, are going to go before the Senate. And then Democrats are basically going to have a choice. Do they keep the filibuster and allow the GOP to suppress the vote all across the country with no consequences? Or are they going to eliminate the filibuster, a relic of Jim Crow? to pass two of the most consequential voting rights bills in decades. That's really the stakes. And I don't think the stakes have been this high for democracy since the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965.
0: Well, it sure sounds like it. And all those things you listed of what, of what H.R. 1 will do, again, we got a lot of this when we passed the Constitutional Amendment a couple of years ago in Michigan. But this is, I mean, the turnout in 2020, because we passed these things, in terms of you know people who could register the same day as the election uh the expansion of of early voting uh mail-in voting uh the secretary of state made it so easy to to anybody and everybody could mail in their ballot um i think hr1 doesn't it doesn't do that does it uh it um it's universal mail-in voting right
1: exactly every state would have to offer the option that you can vote by mail so you wouldn't have to need an excuse to vote by mail a- anymore. And that would lead to 76 million Americans being able to vote by mail who can't currently vote by mail. Wow. Because remember, Michael, in a state like Texas, you can only vote by mail if you're out of town, you're over 65, you're actually in prison. That's the so, so I mean, basically, if you want to vote by mail in Texas, you got to th- get yourself thrown in jail, basically if you're under the age of 65 or take a very extended trip. So just that state alone, you're talking about tens of millions of Americans that don't have access to mail voting, that they would have it for federal elections if H.R. 1 passed.
0: It's so hard for young people in states like um, Texas, where the difficulty, first of all, just getting an absentee ballot, but also if you're going to the University of Houston, but you're from the panhandle, I know we had this problem too in Michigan a few years ago, where they passed a law saying on election an election day you had to vote in your hometown. You couldn't vote as a resident of Houston, even though you're going to school there for four years. And it's there's so many little ways that the system has made it difficult, difficult for people just to simply vote. And and I, I'm I'm asking an obvious question that I think I know the answer to, but. It, it's amazing to me how, how, why, and how is it they think they can get away with this? And, and really, if they're, if you're a politician and you're running for election, don't you want to make it easy for people so they can come out and vote for you? Well, the,
1: the, the craziest statistic and the craziest law is in Texas. The fact that you can vote with a gun permit, but not a student ID. And I mean, that really just gives away- Oh
0: man, there you go.
1: Right there. But I think basically this is all about trying to hold on to conservative rural white political power at a time when the country is becoming increasingly urban, increasingly young, and increasingly diverse. And to really try to blunt the impact of demographic change. And the only way you try to slow the tide in Texas- or roll the tide back in Arizona or in Georgia and all of these places that are changing demographically is to try to have politicians choose their electorate instead of the electorate choosing them. They do it with gerrymandering, and they they do it with voter suppression. They do it in a targeted way, so they could say, you can vote with a gun permit or not a student ID, or you can't vote early on Sunday when black churches do souls to the polls, get out the vote drives. That was a law that was just introduced uh, in Georgia, uh, for example. Or they are fine with mail voting, but as soon as Democrats and as soon as communities of color start using mail voting, they want to get rid of it. So as soon as the black share of male voting increases and the white share decreases, which is what happened in Georgia and Arizona and other states, then they want to get rid of these things. And the idea isn't that you're going to keep people voting in mass, but you're going to shave just enough of the electorate off. You're going to keep just enough people from voting or make it just complicated enough to be able to vote that people won't turn out. And the amazing thing is in 2020, despite all the barriers that we saw, the pandemic, Trump's lies, the sabotaging of the Postal Service. We had record voter turnout in 2020. Yeah. We had the highest turnout yeah. in 120 years, which is incredible when you think we had the highest turnout since 1900, when most people couldn't vote in 1900. Women couldn't vote in 1900. Most African-Americans couldn't vote in 1900. This was Jim Crow. And so the turnout is even more incredible. Then. And instead of saying, you know, this should be the new normal— We should have mail voting in every state, we should have early voting in every state, and we should have voting on election day as it traditionally is held in every state. They are saying we need to get rid of these voting methods because too many people voted. And I'm sure you saw this quote from a Republican in Arizona, the chair of the House Government Elections Committee. He actually said everybody shouldn't be voting. He said quantity is important, but quality is more
0: important. The quality of the voter
1: which is the right. exact same argument that was made in Jim Crow for literacy tests and right. all taxes. So they're coming right out and saying it. It's they're not like you have to it. dig that deep to understand oh, yeah. what they're trying to do
0: here. No, and In fact, here's how little we had to dig uh, in case um, people listening to this weren't watching Fox News during the election. Uh, uh, Basil, let's, let's play uh, this audio clip. This is uh, the former guy, President of the United States, on Fox News and talking about how he thinks— that making it easy for people to vote, trying to get more people to vote is a very bad idea, and just can we just just let 's just roll that it 's just the common facts I mean they have a majority in the House, and therefore you need their vote, and they want to get certain things I, I will tell you this if you look at before and after, the things they had in there were crazy. Uh, They had things, uh, levels of voting that if you ever agreed to it, you'd never have a Republican elected in this country again. They had things in there about, uh, you know, election days and uh, what you do and uh, all sorts of uh, clawbacks. And they had things that were just totally crazy. Well, right there, like you said, he just said it. He just admits that if we make it easy for people to vote and if more people do vote, then Republicans are going to (laughs) lose. Not just him.
1: <laughs> He's, he was like, folks, this is over. He said it. And I mean, this has been motivating Republicans for decades. I mean, you know the quote from Paul Wyrick, the founder of the Heritage Foundation back in 1980, when he was talking to a bunch of preachers in Dallas that supported Ronald Reagan. And he said, I don't want everybody to vote. He said, Some of our Christians have the goo goo syndrome, the good government syndrome. They want mm-hmm. everybody to vote. He said, I don't want everybody to vote. He said, our leverage in the elections goes up when the voting populace goes
0: down. Now many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome, good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down.
1: And that's it right there. That has been motivating Republicans for 30 or 40 years, but has really intensified more recently as their policies have become more extreme and the demographics of the country have changed more and more. And they haven't even made any attempt to be a majority party. I mean, you mentioned the stats. They've won the popular vote once in the last eight presidential elections. So they're not even trying to win a majority of Americans. They're just trying to rig the system through the Electoral College, through the U.S. Senate, through gerrymandered legislative districts, through voter suppression, so that their voters matter more than everybody else. And it's actually worked really well to them because so much of our political system is so skewed. I mean, the Senate right now is split 50-50, but Democrats represent 41 million more Americans because California, with 40 million people, has two senators and 15. Republican states that represent 38 million people have 30 U.S. senators. So, I mean, the Senate is so is already gerrymandered for wow. Republicans. Yeah. Congressional g- districts are drawn by state legislators that are gerrymandered, right? So, I mean, right. like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, I mean, they gerrymandered the maps in 2011 to stay in control. Then they drew the congressional districts as well. So, they get fewer votes, but they get more seats. Like in Wisconsin- Uh, Republicans got 46% of the vote statewide in 2018, but they got 64% of the seats. I mean, that is so incredibly undemocratic. I I don't think most people realize this. I think most people think like, oh, like the candidates are winning because they have more support. Like, no, they're only winning because American politics is so undemocratic that you can actually, I mean, you're a Lions fan, Michael, so you remember this. You can't win if you don't score more points. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry to, I mean, like, I'm sorry to bring this up, but you no, know that all too well, I, you know, yes. but in American politics, you can win less votes and still hold power. And that's what Republicans are doing. And so instead of trying to appeal to more people, they're just trying to rig the system more and more to their benefit. And I think that more than anything explains the current dynamics in American
0: politics but, today. But let me get, I just, I'm sorry, to, I'm, I'm sort of getting at the psychology of this. How do Republicans, so Republicans know this. They know the majority of Americans will not Vote for them, uh, maybe not ever again. It's certainly, that's the trend, as you said, for thirty-three years now. So, so because they know that what this rigging that you talk talk about here, there wouldn't you feel bad? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not asking you to be a shrink here, but wouldn't you feel bad if um, you knew that the only way we'll go back to football, the only way you could win the football game was to cheat? was to do something to rig the game. How do you feel after the game's over? Oh, they're carrying you across the field. Oh, you won the game, but you know you didn't win it. But the only thing <laughs> they care about
1: is the preservation of their power. So they feel like they won the game. I mean, nothing So they don't they don't care if the American people don't want them. No, because they they don't care because they they get the outcomes they want. I mean, nothing better illustrates this than the fact that Mitch McConnell blocked Merrick Garland 237 days before the 2016 election and said the American people should choose the next justice, and then confirmed Amy Coney Barrett eight days before the 2020 election when 65 million people had already voted early. He didn't care because he got what he wanted. And it's, it's a cycle where they get the judges they wanted, they draw the districts they want, and they pass the voter suppression laws they want. And then that becomes a feedback loop, right, where they can further consolidate power that the will of the people has less and less of an impact because what's the, where's, where does popular support translate when you can win by getting fewer votes? When the judges won't strike down your anti-democratic policies, when the system is is already structured in such a way that gives you a benefit Mm. because white rural voters count so much more than black and brown urban voters in our system that was created by slave owners in the 1700s. And I mean, so- the system benefits them in so many ways. It's almost remarkable that Democrats won the presidential election and won the Senate and won the House when you think of all the obstacles they faced to actually even get there.
0: So many obstacles that in winning back in November, Trump had won in 2016 in, with just three states and 77,000 votes. In, in this past November, Biden won by only 40 some thousand votes over 3 states, Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin. That's how close it actually was, even though oh, there's a wide span between the 306 uh, electoral votes versus uh, Trump's 232. But I okay, before we leave this point though, I just want to say this ask you one more time. The Republicans don't care if the majority of the country hates what they stand for and has expressed their hatred for over 30 years. They don't care. That Because I got to tell you, if, if you t- if you show me the data tonight that the majority of the American people hate me and, and hate what I stand for, it's going to affect me. I'm just going to tell you. I'm just going to be honest. I, I think uh, that some Republicans are
1: concerned about that, but the Republican Party has seen over and over that they can win elections despite not getting a majority of votes. They've seen that they can win the, the, the presidency over and over despite losing the popular vote. They've seen that they can win the U.S. Senate despite not getting a majority of votes and not representing a majority of Americans. They've seen that they can win the House just by virtue of drawing the districts through gerrymandering. And they think they're going to take back power that same way. I mean, they already said, we're going to take back the House in 2022 because we control the redistricting process in more states than Democrats. We're going to gerrymander the hell of these districts in Texas, Georgia, Florida, North Carolina, where we have one-party control. And we're going to get back in power just through that. We don't need to moderate. We can overturn the election. We can embrace Marjorie Taylor Greene. We can do all this crazy stuff. But we're going to be there just through gerrymandering alone. I mean, that's that's what they think, and they think the Senate always benefits them because there's so many more rural white conservative states than urban populated states in this country. That there's such a pro Republican tilt in the Senate already that they have a good chance of winning the Senate. Every two years, just because of the geography and the polarization uh, in this country right now, you know, when Wyoming uh, is a has two senators, but Washington D.C., which is larger and much more diverse, has not. I mean, they just they just benefit from that kind of thing, and so they're not concerned. They're only concerned with getting their own voters out to the polls and preventing huge turnout from the other side. And I think the message from 2020 was we got a lot of our own voters out cuz turnout was very high on the republican side too but democrats got more in georgia and in arizona and in wisconsin and pennsylvania and how do we how do we roll that back and how do we roll it back cuz we don't need that many people to be suppressed i mean basically remember trump asked the georgia secretary of state to find 10,000 votes for him basically yeah. 11,000 yeah. votes he said find yeah. 11,700 votes for me well, that's what yeah. the legislature is doing yeah. right now. They're trying to suppress 11,000 Democratic votes so they can win the next presidential election in Georgia. I mean, they're trying to accomplish through legislation what they couldn't through litigation and other means in 2020. That's why H.R. 1 is so important, because it would stop, it would preempt all of these Republican voter suppression efforts that we're talking about.
0: So so what do we, what do, we do here? I mean, is, first of all, is it possible for the Democrats to pick up more Senate seats next year?
1: Well, I think they need to pass these bills now because I think it's going to be very hard for them to win back, keep the House, and keep the Senate if they don't pass these things.
0: Our focus has to be on on this voting these voting rights uh, bills, H.R. 1 and H.R. 4, is it?
1: H.R. 1 and H.R. 4. We need a pro-democracy movement now that we haven't seen since the 1960s. We need the same kind of pro-democracy movement now that led to the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act, remember, Michael, you know this better than I do, it, it didn't seem politically feasible at all at one right. point. I mean, Lyndon Johnson flat out told Martin Luther King in January 1965, I'm not doing it this year. And the events of Selma and other places forced Johnson's hand, and he became an incredible champion of voting rights, but he didn't necessarily want to do that. Events forced him to do that. And the same kind of thing has to happen now. There has to be a sense of urgency that we are watching democracy slip away right before our eyes with these 250 bills to restrict voting rights in 43 states and the concentrated efforts in places like Georgia and Arizona to turn back the blue wave and to turn back historic turnout among young voters, voters of color, modern and progressive whites that joined together in 2020. That really represents the coalition of the ascendant, the new American majority, to try to roll that back and set in, in favor of a shrinking conservative white minority. There has to be a sense of urgency here to do this. And, and really the sense of urgency has to be getting rid of the filibuster, because I believe there are 50 votes to pass both of these bills, yes. H.R. 1 and H.R. 4. The lift isn't getting the support for them. The lift is having Democrats use their political capital to actually pass laws that they already support. So how do we do that? We basically tell them it's now or never. It's now or never for democracy, but it's also now or never for the Democratic Party. I was just talking to voting rights activists in Arizona, Mm -hmm. because Kirsten Sinema, the senator there, says she's never going to change her position on the filibuster. And they're saying Kirsten Sinema only won because of turnout among Latinos, Native Americans, younger voters, that they're trying to suppress in Arizona. She's not going to win re-election. Mark Kelly's not going to win re-election. Joe Biden's not going to win Arizona if those votes are suppressed in 2022 and 2024. So- Let's do it for democracy, but let's also, for the people that only care about power and their own, their own power in the Democratic Party, let's make an argument to them that their own power is at stake here. And that if you want to be in the majority, if you want to get things done, this is not a choice. This is an inevitability that basically if you don't do this, you will lose any ability to exercise power. Uh, and to get things done that you profess to care about. So I think you can make an idealistic case, but I also think you could just kind of make a raw power case, like I'm sure LBJ made to some senators in the 60s. Like, you don't care about civil rights? Well, just do it because this is going to help you politically. I think that's that's also a case that can be made.
0: So how do we get this done with, with the filibuster still in place? How do we get rid of the filibuster? How does this happen?
1: Well, I think it, it happens when you know, Mitch McConnell starts blocking these bills. When they, go to, when they go to the floor and they have a majority of, of votes, but they don't actually pass. And the big piece of legislation that has passed so far, COVID relief, it passed with 50 votes, right? So there would be no COVID relief if the filibuster applied to those bills. And I think right. they, they need to basically say, we need to get rid of the filibuster writ large, but if we're not willing to get rid of it for everything, we need to get rid of it for bills that affect American democracy, that are so important to democracy that- They override the filibuster. That's what Stacey Abrams told me um, we should do. She said there's basically areas in which only Congress can act, where the stakes are so high that we can't allow the filibuster, particularly the filibuster that's a relic of Jim Crow that was used for so many years to block civil rights laws and to block voting rights laws and to block anti-lynching laws and to block laws to abolish the poll tax and things like that, that we can't let history repeat itself. And that the Democratic Party, theoretically, is supposed to be the party that stands for the majority, the party that stands for the future, and you can't allow 41 Republican senators, representing just 21% of the country, to filibuster bills that would stop the next wave of Jim Crow. The stakes are just too high to allow that.
0: Absolutely. Have you talked to Stacey Abrams lately?
1: Yeah. I mean, I talked to her last week, um, Mm -hmm. and we talked about this, and I said— you know, what do you, what do you want to, what are you going to do about all of the voter suppression in Georgia? And she said, you know, we're fighting at the state level, but we need to pass HR one and we need to pass HR four because without federal protection, uh, Republicans are just going to run wild in all of these states. And I said, how do you make the case that we should do that to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema? And she said, you narrowly target the filibuster so that you don't get rid of it altogether. You just get rid of it for bills that are so important for democracy that essentially there's an exemption it's think of it as a democracy exemption Mm. for the filibuster and i think ideally we would get rid of it so we can pass legislation on climate change and all these other things that are really important but the kind of best case worst case scenario is you get rid of it to pass hr1 and hr4 that stops the worst attacks on democracy then it also creates the political space to try to pass all these other laws that you can't pass if voting rights are suppressed. Do
0: you think Biden uh, is ready to take the gloves off on this? On this particular, on HR one, HR four.
1: I don't think he wants to because obviously he he wants to seem postpartisan and above the fray. But I think it's coming whether he likes it or not. I mean that that's the thing here is Democrats are acting like they can control this process and they can't. They can't have it both ways. They can't say this is the most important bill in the Senate because that's what they did. They designated S one. As the most important, which is HR one in the Senate, as the most important bill in the Senate, and they talked about John Lewis as the most important civil rights leader uh, since Martin Luther King. They can't designate S one at this as the most important bill in the Senate and name the the Voting Rights Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and then allow Mitch McConnell to kill it with a filibuster. I mean, they they can't go back to their own voters and tell them that. I mean, when John Olsoff and Raphael Warnock ran for Senate and said so they were going to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act there wasn't an asterisk that said, only if Mitch McConnell lets us. I think that's why there's a sense of urgency right. here. Like if you right. if you listen to Raphael Warnock give his first major speech on the Senate, there was a sense of urgency here saying, we have to deliver for democracy, but we have to deliver to our constituents. We made them a promise that we were going to get this done. And if we don't deliver that promise, we might not be back in a position to do this. So I think the fight's coming whether they like it or not, and I think basically the choice for Biden is, do you want to appear bipartisan, postpartisan, or do you want your agenda to actually pass? And do you want to be remembered as the president that saved democracy or not? And, and that, I think the choice is going to be made for Biden, whether he likes it or not.
0: Because the idea of saving democracy wasn't just, just getting rid of Trump. This is the real deal. This is the, this is the permanency uh, that we're trying to achieve here to save this democracy is to get these bills passed.
1: Well, and it's very clear now that the fever hasn't broken since Trump left. The fever has escalated. It went from 103 to about 105 at this point in terms of where the Republican Party is at uh, in, in terms of, I mean, from an insurrection at the Capitol to trying to overturn the election results after the insurrection to introducing the most extreme restrictions on voting since the Jim Crow era. It's just getting worse and worse. Uh, the Republican Party's anti-democratic streak is just getting worse and worse even so, with Trump out of the picture. And so yeah. I think I think a lot of people thought remove Trump and the fever will break. I knew that wasn't true. you knew that wasn't true. Yeah this r- runs much deeper. I think people are seeing it now. And then the question is, how do you create a sense of urgency about what's happening in Georgia? what's happening in Arizona, what's happening in Congress, with Trump out of the picture, where he's not filing lawsuits every single day to try to throw out the election returns, or white supremacists aren't storming the Capitol, but they're trying to accomplish the same kind of thing through more subtle means. How do you get people to care about that? How do you dramatize that? I think we're starting to see some of that with the events in Georgia and other places, but I don't think it's reached the same critical mass.
0: What do you say to that? The few hundred thousand people that are listening to us right now, what can they do? They, as individuals, whether they live in Idaho or Wisconsin or Connecticut, what can they do? What I mean, this is a. I think people are just dying to do something. They've been listening to us now, uh, and they're like, "Okay, what? What can I do? I want to do something."
1: I mean, I think these
0: two bills,
1: HR one and HR four, they have to be the rallying cry. They have to be the thing that people we talk about every single day. And every senator needs to talk about it that supports it, either because you already support it and you're trying to make people more aware of it, or you're trying to put pressure on the handful of senators that, that, that are reluctant here. It's going to be a lot easier for Joe Manchin to fold on the filibuster when 48 or 49 Democratic senators are already there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're not at that point yet. We're probably at the point where 35 or 40 Democratic senators are there. So there's still a ways to go. I mean, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema get all the attention. But I mean, Dianne Feinstein, Chris Coons, I mean, there's a there's a number of people, including some who represent very blue states, that also haven't moved on the filibuster. So I mean, that would be the most obvious place to start. And just talk about the stakes. Talk about the stakes for... Uh, democracy and talk about the stakes for the Democratic Party. This is a this is honestly probably a once in a generation thing. That if you don't pass these bills now, I'm not really sure when you're going to get another chance to pass them. It's almost a certainty to me that Republicans are going to take back at least one branch of of the Congress in 2022. Oh, geez, don't say that. Uh, well, if you ju- I mean I, I want to be an optimist, but if you just look at the dra- the pure math, yeah, they only need to pick up a few seats in the House. They can. Flip the House through gerrymandering alone uh, if the Democrats don't pass HR one, because they're going to control the drawing of districts in Florida, Georgia, Texas. That might be enough right there to flip the House, just, just because they're going to give those districts—it's it's funny, because this is, again, what we talk about, Michael. All the demographic change is coming from people of color. All of the growth in the electorate is people of color. All of these seats are going to go to white Republicans— because of the fact that they can manipulate the drawing of districts. I mean, they're literally trying to turn back the tide so that the the 2020 America looks like the 1950s America uh, instead. And I think that's why these bills are so important, that if there's—we've seen it. If there's no accountability, it's just going to get worse and worse. If there's no accountability for the people that aided the insurrectionists, if there's no accountability for the person that inspired the insurrection, if there's no accountability for the people that are trying to suppress the vote, they're just going to be more and more extreme in what they think they can get away with. So the only way— to get that accountability now is to put in place the legislation that will mm-hmm. stop them, that will act as a check. And that's why I think this is such an important moment in history right now.
0: Well, I agree. And, and to anybody who's listening, I, I know I often ask you to call the uh, congressional switchboard. I can't think of a more important piece of legislation than this one uh, right now for you to call. And I think call every day and don't say, oh, I've got two Democratic senators, they're you know I don't need to. Call. Oh yes, you do, because they will. They will. It will spread throughout Capitol Hill. All these calls that are coming in, record numbers of calls to our United States senators. Okay, everybody ready? All right. So I need everybody starting today, and then do it again uh, tomorrow, the next day. That switchboard. You know they'll they'll send you. You can. There'll be a voicemail. Sometimes you'll just leave your name and, and just say it onto the voicemail. Ready? Two o two, two two five. 3121. If that's busy, you can try 202-224-3121. If you don't know who your senators are, just tell them the state you live in. That's it. And they'll they'll say, which one do you want first? This senator, that just pick the first one and then call back and ask for the other one. And and leave a message. Believe me, they pay attention to this. And we literally need millions of people over the next week or so calling our senators. and do it every day. It takes you 30 seconds. It's nothing. We're talking about saving our democracy. We will, as Ari says, next year's election and the year and the one after that, it's going to be hell to pay to try and get this through because they are on a rampage. 250-plus bills already introduced in the first two years across the 50 states to suppress more votes. Ari, right, this HR1 and S1, that would essentially put an end to if any of those bills get passed, they become illegal, right? Because the federal government has said no, you cannot discriminate.
1: Yeah, they become illegal for federal elections. Um not everything, but the vast majority the, of what Not they for want the local, not, not necessarily for the local. Yeah, election. I mean because Congress doesn't have the power to set rules for federal elections, that's why the John Lewis Voting Rights Act is a really important component for to H.R. 1, because H.R. 1 is national in scope. It applies the same to every single state and says there needs to be f- rules making it easier to vote and things you can't do for every single state for federal elections. But H.R. 4, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, says that those states with a history of discrimination, both in the past and in the present, they have to approve all of their voting changes with the federal government. To make sure they don't discriminate in the future, so wow, the Georgians, wow. the Arizonans of the world, anything they want, anytime they want to close a polling place in a black neighborhood, or they want to purge people from their rolls, they want to cut early voting, all of that would need to get approved. And so these these bills work really well hand in hand because one is national in scope, and one is targeted at the worst actors in all phases of their elections. And so right. it's kind of the carrot and the stick approach, and you, and you need both in this day and age.
0: Well, Okay, so folks. I'm going to run this by you one more time. When you call your two United States Senators, 202-224-3121 or 225-3121. Are you ready? Ask number one is please pass S-1. That's H-R-1 in the House. It's S-1 in the Senate. And then the second thing that you need to say to your Senators is eliminate the filibuster. Get rid of it. Get rid of it. Don't take the compromise position where, well, we'll let the talking filibuster happen. No, just, uh, just say, get rid. Just let them take the temperature of the American people. They don't want this filibuster. It's The majority is called 51 votes in the Senate, 51. That's it, not 60 votes. So um, in the Senate, let's pass Senate bill number one and let's get rid of the filibuster. I'll put this all down on my podcast page here for you, but please do it and please do it every day. For the next two weeks this is our moment this is our moment it wasn't just about getting rid of trump we have to get rid of all that came before trump all that not just he but those those who represent this kind of discrimination and trying to limit and block americans from voting what could be more un-american than that um ari I can't thank you enough for coming on here.
1: This was great. I really admire your work, and it was great to be able to talk to you about this.
0: Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Ari Berman, the author of Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Thanks for all the work uh, that you do on this issue, and thank you, all of you who are listening, for the work uh, that you're going to do to get this passed through the United States Senate. So before we go any further, just got a little bit more I want to say to you here, but before we do that, I want to give a shout-out to our underwriter for today's episode. Raycon. Raycon makes these excellent, comfortable earbuds with great audio quality. Look, all of us, and especially our kids, we're we're spending way too much time looking at screens. You know, whether it's your phone or your computer, your tablet, your TV, or all of those at once. I want to propose something here because I think this is maybe a good idea and a good idea for them to, to be part of this with us. We need to unplug. Not all the time. But sometimes, maybe sometimes every day, we need to unplug from the screens, rest our eyes, relax, and put our earbuds in. And in my case, these Raycon earbuds are just so comfortable. And I just like to listen to music. Sometimes I put a podcast on. I love audiobooks. And the best part of this, Raycon makes great sound accessible to everyone with wireless earbuds that are half the price of these other premium audio brands. And now they have a great deal for all of you who are Rumble listeners. Raycon is offering 15% off all their products for Rumble listeners. And here's what you've got to do to get this great discount. Go to buyraycon.com. That's buy as in B-U-Y. Buyraycon.com slash Rumble. Don't forget the slash and the Rumble. That's what gets you your 15% off anything that you order from Raycon. com slash rumble. I also want to thank today's other underwriter, and that is SignalWire. SignalWire is a brand new remote office platform. In addition to scheduled video meetings, SignalWire enables quick, informal, and unscheduled interactions. You know when you have to have these, these meetings, online you've got all your co-workers there feels very stiff signal wire it allows you to be more informal you can have unscheduled interactions with each other you know the kind of stuff that's just important you know at the workplace where it's like you know you yes work is work but it doesn't have to be drudgery and it doesn't have to be like you're in some kind of a prison and signal wire unlike some of these other i'm not going to mention their names where you don't have that sense, you just—it's like you're in a rigid box. Signal wire is different. I know a number of people who, you know, film production companies and uh, writers' rooms and things like that. It's a great way. They use this to to uh, collaborate, and also it's a smart way for if you have a small business, if you have any kind of organization, maybe it's a nonprofit or whatever, to use signal wire. People I know that do this—they do it because they want to future-proof their operations. They wanna live in the 21st century and beyond. When we get past this pandemic, a lot of businesses will need to learn some lessons and make plans for the future. And businesses are gonna need to give employees the flexibility that they demand without sacrificing anything that they need to do to run their business. They're gonna need a bit of humanity here. They're gonna need to build and maintain a culture that is humanistic. So I was really happy. When these good folks from Owasso, Michigan, the people that invented Signal Wire, uh, just about 20 miles outside of Flint, they reached out to support Rumble. And I hope, I seriously hope you can check them out. Sign up before April 1st at Signal Wire Signal, that's S-I-G-N-A-L-WIRE, W-I-R-E, signalwire.com, and use the code MORE. That's my last name. M-O-O-R-E. And you can receive an upgrade to special features with your free 30-day trial. So go to SignalWire.com. That's SignalWire.com and use the code MORE. M-O-O-R-E. Okay, we're back. And uh, I just, you know... I want to just say again, first of all, congratulations to President Biden today. He's hitting the 100 million mark. He promised 100 million shots in his first 100 days. It's like day 58. And he's hitting the 100 million mark on day 58. Yes. More of that. Let's Everybody who's listening to this, please get your shot. Most of these states, they're letting younger and younger people get vaccinated uh, not having to wait till may uh, some states have lowered it to 16 and it's and i can't encourage you enough to get your shots wear the masks stay away from crowds we don't have long to go folks i know it's hard i know it's hard but we've got it we've got to get through this the states that are starting to reduce uh, the restrictions and let more and more people gather together my state in Michigan, in the last week, the number of cases have gone up 50%. In Alabama, remember the governor of Alabama came out a couple weeks ago and said, yeah, we're getting rid of all these masks and uh, all these other um, uh, things. 90% increase in cases in Alabama. It's not, it's not time to do this. Do not go to the movie theaters. Do not go into any room that doesn't have windows that can open and allow fresh air in. That's my rule. All right? The worst place to be is in a theater. There's no windows in a theater. I'm for now, and look, and I, you know, I helped to restore and I help run two nonprofit movie theaters in Michigan. We're not opening them. We're not opening them. I'm not gonna risk a single person until we have more people vaccinated, until I see my fellow Michiganders wearing the masks like they should. So that's the deal. We can't do some of the things we want to do until we all agree we have to cooperate with each other and make this happen. The president has promised us there's enough vaccine starting in May 1. Why risk it? Okay, everybody, we're all on the same page on this, right? We all know now. if you've been afraid of taking the vaccine, you know, 100 million shots, 100 million shots have already been administered, Nobody's dropping like flies. Let's just do this. Let's just do this and, and then create our new normal of how we're going to live. Let's not go back to the old normal. Let's have the new normal. And one of the things that we have to do in the new normal is we need voting rights. We need our democracy restored in all 50 states. And that will only happen if we get this bill passed in the Senate, H.R. 1, and then get H.R. 4 passed the in the House and the Senate, and stop the filibuster. We do those things? Oh, my God. (sighs) Life's going to be a lot better. But we have to act, all of us. Make those calls. 202-224 or 225-3121. 202-224-3121. Tell the operator the state you're from. She or he will connect you to one senator and then call back and talk to the other senator. I hope everybody has a good weekend. There's more going on. If I need to, I'll I'll come back and talk to you some more uh, this weekend. If not, I'll see you sometime around the beginning of the week. Um, Many thanks to all of you for your support of this podcast. I want to encourage you to get on my email list. It's very easy. There'll be a link here on the podcast page. That's it everyone. Thank you so much uh, for joining me. This is Michael Moore and this is Rumble. I said America, America. use a lie, but the whole world about to testify. I said the whole-